Hello, my friends, and welcome to the latest episode of the Kokoro Movement Podcast. On this episode, we have Adam Wolf. He is a physical therapist based out of Chicago. We had a really fun conversation, so I'm just going to jump right into it. And without further ado, Adam Wolf. Thank you for taking the time to be on my podcast. No problem. My pleasure. So um, let's uh, give everybody the origin story of how you got started out real quick, because I uh, started following you about three years ago or so. Um, so let's give everybody a, a, your story about how you got started. Uh, how I got started, like just in as a physical therapist or what, anything well, specific? Cause because you're a licensed massage therapist also, right? So did you do that first or? I actually did my massage therapy license after I was a physical therapist. I've been a PT for 12 years and uh, okay. I, uh, my, my PT program left me about nine credit hours short of getting my doctorate, the DPT. And okay. while most were, I think, I think where most master's programs were 65 and mine was 89 and you needed 90 something to, to get it, if I'm not mistaken. And so I was, I was enrolled. I moved to Chicago, and I was practicing as a clinician and just starting my own business as I was also enrolled in the um, uh, transitional doctorate program uh, that my university had set up, my grad program had set up. And as I was starting, I was starting my own business also. And in the state of Illinois, which is where I practice, it's, it's still not a direct access state, meaning you can't just come in. Even if you wanted to pay cash and not go through insurance, you still are required or are required as a physical therapist to be able to see, utilize my physical therapy services in the state of Illinois. So that was just, I found a hindrance. And I thought to myself, what's the doctorate going to do for me at this point? And uh, the answer is still nothing, although it's, you know, it's kind of just a title. And so what I did is started exploring my uh, options for my massage license. And I, I, I I didn't have as many soft tissue skills as I wanted to have. And it just sort of made sense. And I found a school... Uh, in Chicago that would work with me a little and uh, grandfathered me into some of the program and let me barter with them. I taught anatomy and kinesiology, for which I have a strong movement background uh, to begin with, and then I took the courses I needed for free, and I got my massage license. So truth be told, I've only done one real massage where, like, you know, like traditional massage, and I didn't know that I was going to do it till I walked into the room and the lady was under the covers uh, without right. any clothes on, and I don't think either one of us were really, like, satisfied with the experience in retrospect, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, what it's done is it's really it's given me um, good soft tissue skills, and uh, that I think a lot of clinicians after teaching I teach a lot, and so uh, I've observed that massage therapists tend to have a lot of times better, certainly better body mechanics, but better soft tissue skills than a lot of therapists, and I think because it's drilled in a little more. So that's a right. little bit of my story about uh, about that. I came to movement early. My father's uh, an educator in the fitness industry, so. 
uh, he, when I, when I decided I wanted to go back to PT school, which I took, yeah, I studied exercise science in undergrad. Um, and I, I didn't really want to do anything with it out of school and took some time off. I worked in the fitness industry training and, you know, selling memberships and some stuff in larger corporate uh, environments for health clubs. And then I decided I didn't want to do that. And I took some time off, but uh, eventually I came back to it uh, when I was after five years, I think. And I went back to PT school. I started the process when I was 26. I was four credit hours short, or four classes, I guess is a better way to say it, short of being able to have all the everything I needed to apply to physical therapy school. So I needed second semester chemistry, biology, uh, physics, and statistics, and I took that and applied to PT school as I first volunteered at a, the National Rehab. I was living in D.C., so the National Rehab Hospital, uh, and then I got a job there as a physical therapy aide, uh, and then I got into school and. Here I am, and funny enough, this coming May, I'm actually teaching a course on behalf of Rock Tape at the National Rehab Hospital in Washington, D.C., which is very full circle considering I yeah. started my career there uh, observing as PT. Right. So, awesome. Sort of and my so, long-winded story, yeah. Uh, when did you uh, get hooked up with the Gray Institute? Uh, I mean, Gary was somebody that my father uh, followed from very early on, one of the sort of the early adopters of the functional science thought process. So Gary was sort of, you know, I'd go to dinner with Gary Gray before I knew who he really was uh, through right. my dad. And so um, when I decided to go to physical therapy school, my dad gave me, uh, uh, you know, I like think 85 videos uh, in, a, in a little big case and said, watch these. And they were all about three to three and a half hours, if, you know, more or less. And uh, that was the functional video digest and that whole series and then the other ones that came along with it. And so uh, I watched those multiple times before I went to PT school, and then I went to PT school, and uh, that was a challenge, too, in itself, because I had learned it through the applied function. I, I learned movement uh, the way that Gary teaches it, rather than, like, what the books really said. I had taken enough breaks right. and was seeing what my dad does, and so it was, uh, I came to that really innocently, and so that was some of the easier stuff, not that it's easy, but for me to yeah. pick up going along in my career, uh, and I think has really lended to some of the thought processes I have now. So it got me into school, trouble in school, as I said, in that, you know, the teacher, I can distinctly remember a couple of times when the teacher would be talking about something in an orthopedics or biomechanics class and say, well, what about this? That would be my question. And the teacher would say, I never thought about it like that before. And so I would go home and call my father and say, you know, they're saying, they're saying this. And his response would be, you can't talk about it because you need <laughs> to pass your exams. And, you know, I, right. uh, I kind of joke and ha ha. And, uh, you know, and so we didn't. And, and then I really hit applied functional science quite hard uh, after school for a number of years. And then from there, it's sort of come full circle in that uh, I can understand, like, some of that more isolated thought process uh, that I really sort of poo-pooed early on in my career. If I was to look at myself as a clinician, if I was to see me as a clinician 10 years ago as I was really into just the strictly movement thought process, I wouldn't really understand uh, – a lot of why I was doing what I was doing, you know. Right. And so, um, and then how did you get hooked up with uh, neurokinetic therapy? When did that happen? Uh, well, through the Gray Institute, I guess, you know, applied functional science, as I said, uh, I studied it real hard and still continue to study the movement component that Gary teaches, uh, you know, regularly. Uh, what, one of the things I like about uh, applied functional science is just the integrated thought process, but particularly AFS is that, uh, it can be a, a modality in that doing a lunge matrix or a three-dimensional press 
or whatever we're going to do in terms of three-dimensionalizing any activity. But really what it is, I think, the more you understand it, uh, the more it becomes a, a lens in which to look through everything else rather than a modality. And so through the Gray Institute and just sort of understanding and, and having that desire to, to learn from people. And I always, when I was at the, a lot of the Gray Institute stuff, and I did the fellowship, the 40-week fellowship uh, fairly early on, and uh, through that always found the most benefit at the breaks. Not that I didn't love like sitting and listening to all those really smart people talk, but when you were with the other clinicians saying, oh, how do you do this and how do you do that? And, you know, right. learning more. That, that, in any course I've ever taken, that's when I've learned the most. And for those that are listening, sort of what I, you know, so don't go just walk outside at breaks, like stand and watch some of the other clinicians and listen to what they're doing because that's when I always picked up the nuggets. But from that, uh, met one of my good friends, Nick Studholm, and Nick is a chiropractor right. who I, I have a uh, podcast with. Uh, and, and Nick did the Gray Institute and him and I just sort of hit it off and had similar viewpoints and, uh, 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 on humor and a lot of other things. And so we, we sort of hit it off and Nick does a lot of muscle testing. And so he guided me into muscle testing and the thought process of applied kinesiology, uh, and applied kinesiology a lot of times in the physical therapy world tends to be, uh, poo-pooed for lack of a better term, uh, because there can be some esoteric components to it, but, when we strictly get it down to the nuts and bolts about what a muscle test is and what we're doing with applied kinesiology, particularly from a musculoskeletal perspective, I think uh, there's a lot of value to be had from it. And so Nick, right. having came to applied functional science after applied kinesiology, uh, introduced me to it. And then I came to neurokinetic therapy just through that because, uh, you know, through my research, NKT uh, was developed by David Weinstock and, David Weinstock learned with and from Jocelyn Oliver, who uh, he taught for for 25 years and has uh, started neuromuscular reprogramming. And she learned that from uh, a thought process called Touch for Health, which is basically the non-clinical version of applied kinesiology because the applied kinesiologists would only let uh, chiropractors take it at one point. So now it's right. the uh, Touch for Health, uh, became the massage therapy sort of world's int intro and viewpoint. So my long-winded story of how I came to NKT is through Nick Studholm and from applied kinesiology found uh, neurokinetic therapy and then uh, neuromuscular reprogramming and then touch for health. And always, So I'm sort of digging down. I'm always really interested in uh, uh, lineage uh, and right. where people learned what from. And so that's, uh, you know, the muscle testing. What I like about muscle testing, and I know, it can be sort of esoteric and very subjective, and I'll give everyone that. They're, they're right. Uh, but yeah. the, the nervous system, what's interesting is that the uh, muscles and glands, I think, are the only part of the body that has no intrinsic nervous system. And it is, what I mean by if you, like, cut out your heart or your, your, your organs, your intestines, and you put it in the right environment with the right solutions, and your, your heart will continue to beat. And so... Right. Uh, it has its own intrinsic nervous system, but the muscles don't and glands don't. And so I think uh, specifically, uh, certainly muscles can be, from my viewpoint in the way that I work, uh, is a direct reflection of the nervous system and how well muscles are engaged or not engaged. And if we sort of correlate things and extrapolate, why might I do that? Well, pain science shows that pains produce inhibitions and define that however you want to, but certainly it's less representation to a region uh, and, and a delay in the nervous system is the way that I look at it. There's a, a delay yeah. in the timing of uh, muscles' ability to engage efficiently. And if that's right. the case, then we think about reciprocal inhibition and all these basic concepts that we learned in school. 
then you know if something's kind of inhibited, well then something's inhibiting it. And so right. to be able to uh, have a thought process to tie it together, I find muscle testing on a larger scale to be uh, really beneficial. And, and NKT right. is just it's a it's a uh, it's a protocol basically, you know, it's a yeah. certification. And NKT it's a good one and it's been a lot of value to me. And it's not the only one that I use. And uh, you know, again for me it comes to extrapolation and. Uh, uh, being able to, you know, what what can I tie you to anchor to my principles? And really what it comes down to for me a lot is my fundamentals of intervention. That's what I've been thinking a lot about. And right. uh, if, you, if you don't know the name Lenny Parasino, Lenny is uh, one of the main educators for the Gray Institute and a friend and mentor uh, who taught, teaches the CAFS for the Gray Institute. Uh, okay. But when I had the opportunity to uh, teach with Lenny not too long ago, he challenged me to come up with what I consider my fundamentals of intervention in that whatever I learn from whoever I learn it from, what can I anchor to? And what can I be consistent with across the board? And you'll find that that can be really, I've found it really valuable, but you'll start finding that, um, you know, if you can't, for me anyway, if I can't put it into like what my fundamentals of intervention are, I'm really not interested in learning it. And at this point in my practice, and that might change, but one of my fundamentals of intervention is just understanding that, you know, this concepts and, uh, an idea of pain and the pain processes and that pains produce inhibitions. And so why shouldn't I then go and look uh, for what potentially best guessing, it's, it's just a best guess, it's all best guess. Right. But yeah. what in my experience and best guess based on, you know, doing this for a little while is, you know, what, what might be a, a relationship that I can change? Because all we're trying to really do is change the input. If we know pain is an output, all we're right. really trying to do is change the input, and there's a bunch of ways to change inputs, and so uh, including adjustments or rubbing or uh, stretching tissue, whatever we're going to do, engaging muscles, whatever, we're changing inputs into the brain if pain is an output, and we know that. So the question right. becomes, what's the specific input from a musculoskeletal perspective anyway uh, to provide to the system to change the output? And if the system's too connected uh, versus not connected enough, if we're just going to keep it really simple, the input that I'm going to provide, a stretch or an engagement of tissue, or if I'm going to teach somebody to roll on an area or whatnot, is going to change based on what I'm seeing, and the muscle test can provide that for me. So right. uh, that, an, uh, that was really long-winded, man. That was good guitar no, solo right great. there. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, actually gonna, uh, <laughs> I'm actually going to rewind a little bit because you mentioned that, um, you know, you learned the most from, you know, the breaks that you were taking during these courses, and that's actually when – I was introduced to muscle testing was uh, at uh, the DNS exercise one course. And I saw uh, there was a chiropractor doing muscle testing on a guy in during the lunch break. And I was like, well, what is that? And then the next day he did a whole entire assessment on me and then ended up cracking one vertebrae after an hour of muscle testing and figuring out all these different dysfunctions that I had. And then that's how, you know, that just, blew my mind to pieces being like, well, what am I doing? And what are, what is everybody else doing? We need to, I need to figure this out. And then, so, you know, obviously you go to YouTube and type in muscle testing and NKT comes up and then I jumped on that bandwagon. And, um, yeah, so that's, but, and then that's also where I learned a lot, um, from those DNS courses is just making sure I brought my lunch with me and then just sitting around and listening to all these discussions that everybody else was having just such an incredible learning opportunity. So, yes, I I mean, it's about integration for me. It really is. And being able to like bring together a number of thought processes uh, that are consistent, you know, and I think that that's the important piece. And, 
Uh, and you know, again, NKT is a, a, a good strategy to do it. Um, right. There are there are a lot of good strategies. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> so. Um, I wanted to uh, – the reason why I brought you on the podcast was to uh, talk to you about um, one of Gary Gray's ideas, which is the uh, functional muscle function. And so I was listening to a podcast about a year and a half ago. It was called uh, PTs on Fire, and they started they started talking about how, you know, under the force of gravity, the quad doesn't extend the knee. It, um, it decelerates knee flexion. And – you know, I I came from the traditional school background to where I was taking traditional anatomy and physiology, and so that's what I was convinced that the knee does is ex- or, or what the quad does is extend the knee. And then so they told me this new thing, and I had to listen to that podcast eight times in a row just to kind of wrap my head around what they were saying. So I was, uh, and you talk about it a lot in your book also. So I was just kind of hoping that you could give everybody an overview of what uh, functional muscle function actually is. Yeah. Uh, so you're asking what's functional muscle function. I would say that uh, that is the way that Gary Gray and the Gray Institute would describe the way that the muscles typically would work when we look at it from an integrated rather than an isolated perspective. Is that sort of what you want me to talk about a little bit? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, you said the word does right there, and that's the word that I think uh, we can get hung up on before I go any further, and that leads to a lot of absolutes. Uh, And I find that the more I study anything, particularly movement or uh, muscle testing or motor control or anything, the less I feel there are a lot of absolutes. So I'd rather use the word can versus does as we're right. going along. And that, for me, really fits into the overall concept of what applied functional science is. And so if we're going to talk about the movement component of it and that functional muscle function component of it, I think it would be best to define what a, applied functional science is for those of you that are out there that are listening and aren't familiar with it. And Gary Gray would define applied functional science as the combination of the physical, behavioral, and biological sciences sort of melded and mixed up into one. And so if we think about uh, physical, behavior, biological, for me, also sounds like mind, body, spirit, if that's what does it for you. And it also sounds like biopsychosocial, if that's what, you know, that's the perspective that you're coming from. And so understanding that there's integration and when there's disintegration is typically when there's pain that arises. And sometimes pain can come from a lack of a movement or the inability of something to move. And sometimes it can come from somebody having a lot of anxiety or pain and, and the concepts and processes that go along with that. So within the context of applied functional science, uh, and if we're talking about the physical component of that and the movement component of it, I would say that what we need to do is understand that most of the time the body reacts rather than acts upon any forces uh, or rather up- upon any body. Uh, and, and and so the example that you gave, the quadricep, is a really good and clean one. So while my quadricep can extend the knee in isolation, in one plane of motion, I would say that's not what it typically is going to do uh, in what Gary would say is upright function, which he would describe as being three-dimensional and being driven from consistencies, which he calls truths, uh, of how the body moves. And so while it can extend the knee, 
in isolation in one plane of motion. What it typically is going to do in integration, if everybody stands up, if you're not driving right now and you stand up, and if your quadricep went out, you'd go to the ground. Uh, and so your quadricep, while it can't extend the knee, what it's really going to do is it's going to slow the knee, uh, and it's going to control knee flexion rather than extend the knee. And that's only in one plane of motion. It's also going to control frontal and transverse plane motion. So rather than create motions, a lot of times what it does is it controls motions and forces that are presented to the body. And so there are some pretty consistent forces that are presented to the body uh, that we can't really argue with if you're going to look at it. Gravity is one of those. We know that it exists. It's something difficult to uh, argue with. Ground forces is something else we know, ground reaction forces. Uh, we've all heard that every action has an equal and opposite reaction. And so uh, every time your foot hits into the ground, the ground is going to push back up at you. And so gravity, ground reaction, mass, we know that that exists. We can't really argue with it. Momentum, we know that that exists. We can't really argue with it. And if we think about the fact that the body is continually reacting to gravity, ground forces, mass, momentum, our perception of what muscles really does sort of shifts, in my opinion. And it goes from this place where muscles can create force, but what they really are going to do is control the forces that are presented to it. And within that construct, I believe that a lot of times, from my perspective of what functional muscle function is, uh, injuries are going to occur when some of these forces are presented to the body that the body can't necessarily handle really efficiently uh, while they're still being presented. And so uh, injury is going to occur. And so within that concept of functional muscle function, from my understanding of it anyway, if uh, example is if you're walking off the curb and you're walking down the street and you step off of a curb and there's a divot in the curb and your foot uh, catches the divot and you maybe your foot inverts a little bit, you kind of roll your foot in, uh, in a layman's terms, uh, that's more ground forces that are presented. You, your, your body created momentum. There's more ground forces. If you don't have maybe lateral column stability and maybe glute med strength, to control that frontal plane, that increase of load and forces presented in the frontal plane, a lot of times what will happen is you'll invert your ankle and you'll sprain your ankle. And so sure. uh, those injuries occur, forces are presented, you couldn't handle it, you uh, sprain your ankle, your peroneal, you know, the soft tissue, the ligaments, uh, injury occurs. And so that's sort of the idea of what I would say functional muscle function is. Does that answer your question? It does, yes, sir. So. Okay. Yeah, that was a really good explanation. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, and so, you know, under that, that concept of drivers, you know, I kind of blew through that, but that, I think that's really important to understand, like, what is a driver? And that's something else that Gary and the Gray Institute talks a lot about is, is the concept of a driver. And if you're going to understand integrated movement, the, the, what I like a lot about integrated movement is that if you know what should happen, if you drive somebody in space or try to create a reaction in space, you can see if it happens or not. And if it doesn't happen, we have to ask that question, why isn't it happening? And that's where we're able to dive in a little bit more. And I think the power of understanding integrated motion and what should happen for any intended task, because then you can see if it happens or not through a driver. And a driver, uh, Lenny Parasino would define as just a way to create a reaction, which I think is really great. I can create reactions in any number of ways. If everybody yeah. stands up and you take your right hand and reach behind you uh, at shoulder height as far as you can, uh, if you're looking straight ahead – and you take your right hand and rotate right at shoulder height, and you're looking straight ahead, you're going to get left cervical rotation, and you're also going to get left foot pronation. And I didn't tell you to do either one of those. I just know that if you take your right hand and reach behind you at shoulder height, as far as you can to the right, through rotation, you're, those motions are going to be created. And so that's a quick example right. of, like, 
what a driver is, but it's a way to create a, a reaction. And there are physical drivers that I just gave you one. There are behavioral drivers and biological drivers. So I think it's important to understand, uh, you know, what's the driver and, and somebody's coming into you and what's the question, what's, what are they really trying to get from you? So yeah. something else Gary taught me. So. That's awesome. So I'm going to switch gears a little bit. Um, so I took uh, functional range conditioning from Dr. Andrea Ospina a couple of weeks ago. Oh, and cool. Good course. Yeah. Oh, it was a great course. It's, it fits really nicely into applied functional science thought process, I think. Yeah. He's really looking at a lot of the same things, but from a different angle. They're looking in the same, you know, cube, but differently, I think. Right. And, you know, yeah, that guy's like my power animal right now because I'm kind of – I'm coming from um, uh, CrossFit space, and so he's very articulately saying everything that I've been kind of having um, problems with with the – CrossFit, which has become a sport instead of a training modality. So, um, and we could talk about that at another time. Um, but what I was really interested in, and um, I saw a, a, um, a photo of you uh, teaching a rock tape course uh, to a friend of mine uh, last year, and you were talking about um, intrinsic foot strength and and individual toe movement. And so, you know, Dr. Andrea Ospina was talking about that too. And, you know, we were going through the whole entire body, um, you know, articulating all our joints. And then he gets down to your foot and he starts talking about what we should be able to do with our feet. And then he demonstrated and then he said, now you guys try. And I did the, the typical thing where I looked down at my foot and think really hard and then nothing happens because I've been wearing shoes my whole life. And so what I want to uh, talk to you about now is um, – how important is intrinsic foot strength and, and how do you regain the function of your foot back? So how important is intrinsic foot strength is your first question to me. So Correct. I'm going to divide yeah. it into, I'm probably going to have you ask me the second question again. But okay. uh, I would say it's only important uh, when it's important, man, you know, and, right. and it's not something that I look for in everyone. But if you're coming into me with foot or knee or hip pain, you know, I'm, I'm looking at your foot. Uh, right. And, you know, through muscle tests, just sort of getting a global perspective of, like, combinations of tissue and how they work together to control forces. So I think that, you know, if you're having pain and, and if you have pain in your foot, certainly I think it becomes an issue. Uh, right. And you're just thinking about pain science and the thought, like, the understanding that if you have a pain, the longer you're in pain, the longer it's going to take to get out of pain, number one. But right. the, uh, that upon pain, uh, there are immediate brain changes in your chemistry of your brain uh, and that over time what happens is you lose representation uh, in your brain and your somatosensory cortex to the painful region I think is important because then if you have pain and you don't have individual uh, function, the ability to move your toes and have them be differentiated to as much as they can be understanding the anatomy and not all of them can be fully differentiated. Uh, I think is important and you know I find that it becomes uh, something that people can work on if nothing else it's a mindfulness exercise an intense uh, intense isolated activity that we can create and bring awareness to to create changes in the brain because that's really ultimately what it's about in my opinion I mean the more I understand movement and the more I understand FRC and, and NKT and all the other three-letter acronyms that are out there the more I just recognize I'm trying to change input and so uh, it's, it becomes important. And I think there's a bunch of great ways to strengthen intrinsic muscles. And I think that not everybody that has pain has the ability to differentiate their toes 
and not everybody that doesn't have pain has the ability not, doesn't have the ability to differentiate their toes. Said differently, you cannot have pain and still not wiggle your toes individually, and you right. can have pain and wiggle your toes individually, you know, quite beautifully. So it doesn't always add up, but it becomes a good place to start. And I think intrinsic yeah. muscles become important. You know, Nick Studholm said it to me the best, and I think he got it from uh, Tommy Showed, who I had on one of my podcasts and wrote the book called Human Locomotion, which is fantastic. Uh, but he talks about uh, in, intrinsic muscles are force producers. So one joint muscles are force producers, and multiple joint muscles are force reducers. And a different way to say that, and the analogy that I like is that uh, local road and interstate highway muscles. And if we think about local road muscles not doing what they need to do, then interstate highway muscles are these multiple joint muscles, uh, which should control extremities in space. And we've all heard distal, you know, mobility, proximal stability, all that kind of stuff. Proximal stability, distal mobility, all that kind of stuff. We've heard that. If you don't have it, then these these long muscles which should allow and control extremities in space have to alter their function and do the job of the one joint muscles a lot of times producing force rather than reducing force and pain processes occur because interestingly enough particularly in the foot when we're talking about gait and we're talking about all these things my big take home after rereading Tommy Schoed's book Human Locomotion is that the intrinsic muscles particularly in the feet have very little concentric muscle action during the gait cycle. That's so interesting to me. If we think about like the eccentric load and the ability to sustain isometric contractions over time, that's really what has to happen in these muscles in the feet. It's not a concentric muscle action. And to tie it back to applied functional science, or and we always talk about uh, force production rather than force reduction. And so, you know, if you can't reduce force really efficiently and eccentrically load and have a sustained isometric contraction, you're going to have to concentrically produce force, which is going to piss off the tissue, particularly in the bottom of the foot, because all of the processes that go along with having to produce force, including ATP production and all those acidic uh, uh, reactions that happen in the body. So tying this back to your initial question, uh, why intrinsic muscles, they become important. And I think that on a larger scale, uh, isolated muscles, if we're talking about intrinsic muscles and creating strength in them through isometric contractions or otherwise, tying it to what the literature says, isometrics become really important. And I always found, though, I sort of poo-pooed that early in my career. Let me just say it that way. And I feel yeah. that uh, 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 the steps back that I've taken in my understanding has been through understanding the value in some of those regressive thought processes. If you can't do a sexy 3D lunge, and I give you a couple regressions and you're still ugly with it, well, A, it's either nervous system, but there's no real, in my opinion, regressive thought process that comes along uh, that builds and is consistent with uh, pain science, including trying to build space in the brain when you have pain and when you don't have a lot of representation in the somatosensory cortex. How are you going to do that? Through isometric activity which is non-inflammatory, which also is a great way from what the research shows to build space in your brain uh, to create more representation to get out of pain. Uh, and, and so isometrics and intrinsics, muscles a lot of times when we're working on isometrics, what we're going to find is that a lot of times it's more of those intrinsic muscles that you're going to work. A lot of times those one-joint muscles, uh, those are the ones that need it. And so I think intrinsic muscles become really important does that answer your question i went on just i'm on a roll today here man hey no man that's that's why i got you on the podcast i ask you questions and then you answer them to the best of your ability so that's what i was looking for what was part two what was part two so part two is is how do you restore function of your foot 
Like, what would be uh, uh, the best exercises for you to do, or is that just kind of a loaded question? I don't know. Like, David Tiberio from the Gray Institute would say it depends, and then the answer, you can, you know, I can answer the best of my ability based on the situation, but I don't know, man. I really don't know, like, what the best answer is. I'll say that, like, generally, my experience clinically, uh, you know, and what Gary and the, you know, the guys talk about is the foot basically, one, I think it's a fascinating that a quarter of the bones in the entire foot are found uh, in your feet, between the two feet. And that's kind of fascinating. Um, yeah. and, and so if we think about what the foot needs to do, as Gary and David Tiberio would say, the foot needs to be a mobile adapter when your foot hits into the ground and just sort of adapt into what happens there. But it also needs to be a rigid lever when your foot's behind you in order to tighten up and provide a stable surface for those intrinsic muscles, which you were just referring to, to be able to to propel and create the force necessary or the isometric stabilization for the windless mechanism and the eccentric load and in the plantar fascia and up the posterior chain that needs to occur. And, yeah. and if that can't lock up, so my experience a lot of times is that the midfoot uh, has trouble locking up at the second phase of gait. And so then you find that the muscles in the intrinsic part of the foot tend to, uh, tend to pull from an unstable surface and that causes, you know, all the pain processes that are associated with it. So, I think the first place, speaking extremely generally, that I try to do is look at the midfoot and getting the midfoot to lock up appropriately and then checking, you know, can the midfoot lock up or is it, is it a, you know, do you have a rear foot issue that your midfoot's getting, you're blowing through your integrity and, and so I don't know like what, what the specific exercise is, but uh, I would say it's geared towards locking up. A, a on the, within that fun, you know, thought process that I referred to earlier and that fundamentals of intervention, always trying to get you out of pain and unloading tissue. Uh, early right. on, and so I might, and I'm going to try to unload that tissue on the bottom of your foot in whatever means necessary, tape, rubbing on it, whatever it might be, strengthening, whatever it might be, or a combination of all of it, uh, and then I'm going to try to build space in your brain through whatever way that I can, really working on if it's, you know, plantar fasciitis, which I think is sort of what you're referring to, that, that bottom of the foot pain, hurdy foot is what I like to call it. It's trying to, you know, get the get the midfoot to lock up appropriately for the second phase of gait, and then make sure that all the joints above it uh, particularly, and you may also below, but all, particularly above that midfoot, uh, are able to do what they need to do when they need to do it at that second phase of gate and all three planes of motion. And I would say that I would make sure that that can happen, you know. Uh, yeah. and, and then also, like, working on intrinsic strength, Tom showed who I mentioned, M-I-C-H-A-U-D, uh, who wrote the book Human Locomotion, just came out with a just fantastic uh device called a toe pro you can find that on his website humanlocomotion.org uh okay. and i think he put, if you put in two movement guys you get a discount if i'm not mistaken that's my podcast but okay. uh he's got a device called a toe pro and basically what he's found through that the research is showing is that the the flexor digitorum brevis uh becomes really important to strengthen at that second phase of gait and, and the ability to lock up the foot and and that's really what provides the stability and if you have plantar fasciitis or hurdy foot or particularly like metatarsalgia, you know, kind of midfoot pain in, the, in the, your foot, what they found is that the uh, uh, digging your toes into the ground as you're walking helps to offload the, the metatarsals and sort of offload it. And then so also what they found is strengthening the flexor hallucis brevis, sorry, flexor digitorum brevis uh, through some of these isolated positional isometrics uh, has, has a large ability to offload the midfoot and, and to provide also more stability and balance in the elderly population. So they found that that, that has for ankle strategies and all that. So the toe pro is fantastic because there's some really smart progressions, but basically what it does, it's the foam 
padding that's got some uh, inversion and eversion and, and dorsiflexion or plantar flexion, depending on how you want to use the, the pad, but it's going to position your flexor digitorum brevis particularly or the bottom of your foot into that second phase of gait, and you can start to isometrically strengthen these muscles because if, if you can't just, on, with your foot on the ground, isometrically uh, you know, engage your flexor digitorum brevis. You need to wind up the foot and get the foot, the midfoot into the position that it would be in for the flexor digitorum to be tensioned enough to be able to work correctly. And, and Tom does a much better job of explaining this. Uh, and yeah. if you ever have the opportunity to hear it, but so toe pro is a lot of what I'll use if I'm getting into intrinsic strength, if I'm going to okay. go that route. Right so. on. I'm right on top of that. Um, so yeah. now I'm going to switch gears again because I know oh. you've been, uh, taking some of the functional neuro neuro orthopedic uh, rehabilitation courses. And so yeah, I wanted sure. to get um, uh, your input on those and how you're liking them so far. Yeah, FNOR, uh, functional neuro orthopedic rehab is uh, really a lot of what I've been talking about. I've learned through, through them and I, and I haven't mentioned them up to yet because I've known that you're going to be asking me about them. So I'll give the opportunity, right, yeah. but uh, FNOR, uh, fnor.net, fnor.net uh, uh, is where you can find them. But it's developed by two guys, uh, David George and Stuart Fife. David is a chiropractor uh, and a nurse and very uh, educated in functional neurology from the Carrick Institute. And Stuart Fife, Stuart Fife is a physical therapist that's out of Savannah, Georgia, and also has a strong orthopedic background and has done some of the Carrick. And so they met and came up with uh, this FNOR. And what I would describe FNOR is is uh, just sort of best practices for approaching uh, the clinical orthopedic patient that presents for sort of that, you know, that person that can't lunge really well and isn't integrating things. And, you know, what some of the regressive thought processes is uh, based on uh, extrapolating best practices through what science has demonstrated to be appropriate and, uh, you know, understanding, really working from the concepts that uh, pain is uh, neurological and really what we're working with is the neuro, uh, neurological system. I think the one of the most powerful quotes that David George has given that I like and use all the time is really actually is one of my, uh, my become part of my fundamentals of intervention is treating capacities rather than anatomy. And I think that's mm -hmm. a lot of what Gary Gray has said differently and a lot of what Andrea Ospina has said differently, but uh, the ability to treat capacities rather than anatomy becomes really important. And so one of the knocks, in my opinion, and the thing that I had presented when I have taught applied functional science, gotten the most butt up against and people have resisted the most is the concept of transitional zones or transformational zones and being able to assess those cleanly and efficiently and understanding what the you know, hip or the foot or whatever joint is doing in all three planes of motion in a specific time frame. And so while that's important to understand, uh, I think the concept of treating capacities rather than anatomy simplifies things even more. And it allows me, it takes it a step back from what's, sometimes it's important to understand exactly what the joint needs to do, but not all the time. And so treating capacities is a uh, simple example is watching somebody walk uh, and watching and filming them walk and, and, and making sure that uh, there are specific, because there's a lot of research on gait, and so that, you know, how well can your foot, uh, knee, hip, lumbar spine, all this position, shoulders, or whatever it is, positionally, how well can you accept the capacity at heel strike and mid stance and, and, and toe off and all these positions that there's uh, validated uh, research that anybody can look at and say, well, these are the joint mechanics and these are what should it be at. And, and then looking at the ethnor concept is, First, just watching you move and how well can you get into those positions. And if you have pain, 
being able to then rather than like get caught up in treating the anatomy of your hip or your low back when it hurts or your shoulder when it hurts, looking at, well, regardless of if you have foot, knee, hip, shoulder, back, neck pain, uh, how, how well do you walk and what's one side of your body like versus the other side? And if there's differences, and certainly if there's differences in some joints that would contribute mechanically, looking at lines of tissue controlling forces that are different on one side, it, you know, it becomes important if you have neck pain or shoulder pain, how well you control mid-stance in your hips and your pelvis and all these other things. So, so treating capacities rather than anatomy is one thing that uh, functional neuroorthopedic rehab or FNOR has, has really anchored into me. It's really allowed me also to sort of take a huge step back from my thought process in terms of treatment, and not everything needs to be what I call now integrated integration and the sexy three-dimensional stuff. And it's great when we can have that. But if you can't have that, we need some regressive thought processes based on science, based on understanding that we lose representation in the brain and the best strategies to create representation in the brain, I think, becomes really important. And so uh, FNOR has allowed me to have that thought process. And probably one of the most powerful things that it's done is allowed me to understand that most pain, and in my experience now, is uh, called is what I refer to through, through FNOR as neurogenic inflammation, and uh, you know the simplified said differently, the way to say that is the superficial peripheral nerves are pissed off and right. inflamed through any processes and causing what becomes peripheral sensitization, which becomes central sensitization, and now we're into these pain patterns that people are talking about. And so yeah. understanding that most pain, if you look at, at where people's pain patterns are and then you go look at a peripheral nerve chart, you'll see that it's very consistent with the distributions of some of these superficial and peripheral nerves. And so the ability through your palpatory and orthopedic-type skills to identify some of where the pain patterns are, looking at a chart, and be able to do something about it through mobilization, if, if, uh, understanding that a lot of times some of these superficial nerves uh, that are inflamed and pissed off can mimic pathoanatomy uh, or mimic joint pain and pathology, uh, uh, we can clear up some things. So a lot of times now, you know, for back pain, the first thing, if you look in your low back, I don't think QL, I don't think, oh, herniated disc, I don't think any of that stuff. I think your cluneal nerves are pissed off. And is it your superficial, your medial, or your inferior cluneal nerves? And if you've never heard of the cluneal nerves, Write them down and go look it up, C-L-U-N-E-A-L. I didn't know about it, but I was, like, pissed off. When I learned about the cluneal nerves and the power of what they, you know, really do, I thought to myself first, why am I not learned about those in PT school and why have I been treating right. from this paradigm for the past 10 years? And so yeah. the cluneal nerves are basically the dorsal roots from L5 to S5, basically. It provides sensory innervation to anything in your low back but upper hamstrings and in the front of your hips. Yeah, and you have pat. We have innervations off of them and branches off of them, which provide sensory innervation to you know joints. I believe it's the iliohypogastric nerve. I might be mistaken, but it's one of the off the superior uh, cluneal nerve, which provides sensory innervation to your facet joints. So a lot of times people come in and they're like, "Oh, my back hurts, my facet joint. I've got a, a lumbar disc pathology. I got a L5 S1 herniation and a this and a that, and it hurts when I do this and my straight leg raise and." When I go back into extension and my facets are closed and it's a facet irritation, blah, blah, blah. And I do nothing to the facets specifically and don't do anything except pinch on the superficial tissue and get your superficial tissue mobilized a little bit better. And then I retest you and you, all of a sudden you don't have that facet pain. Well, how can it be your pathology in your disc or your anything if I can change your movement without doing anything deep to your disc? 
Right. And so that's what it's allowed me to do is kind of step back and understand, like really take a look at these peripheral nerve charts and understand that a lot of times through pain processes that uh, the superficial peripheral nerves uh, are providing uh, feedback that's really sp- common to what the joint, the histop joints and pathology in joints would be. And so then just understanding, well, wh- where is the joint, what, where does the joint hurt? What nerves innervate it superficially uh, and sensorily? And being able to mobilize that tissue superficially and rechecking. And if it's not changed your pain without doing anything deep, how can it be coming from your joint, your pain? And so it's allowed, it's freed me up and made me less aggressive in my uh, manual therapy skills. I get aggressive when I need to and I sort of have mallet hands. Um, But I only use that when I need to. But what it's also done is it allowed me to uh, understand that uh, if that's the case and you have chronic pain, that I can make some really specific and quick changes to your pain patterns based on these consistencies of mobilizing the superficial tissue, understanding that these superficial nerves that we're finding uh, that were mechanically freeing up and liberating to be able to slide better in some of the superficial tissue are polymodal, meaning they also respond to chemical uh, and, and, and temperature changes. So I could now have opportunities to use uh, hot or cold or, or menthol or heating or uh, what David George has come up with is called pro, neuroprologel, understanding that the superficial tissue is going to be more acidic in nature. And so to have a topical-based, dextrose-based solution to apply uh, a, a lubrication or rub on the tissue that alkalizes the nerve uh, helps to change the pain patterns and alkalize it to change the signals that are being sent up into the brain. And so uh, that's my long-winded what FNOR answer is. It's like taking it. best practices. Uh, it's taking best practices and applying it in a really logical thought process. You've got to get you out of pain first. We've got to build space in your brain to the painful regions. And uh, the best way to do that and the most innocent way to do that is through intense isometric holds because yeah. isometrics a lot. And that just becomes the which, which isometrics and being able to quantify it from a integrative standpoint and are you integrating things in your cerebellum and your vestibular system and, you know, all those type of pieces. But isometric activities... Uh, are not inflammatory to your system. So if you're coming into me in pain and you're pissed off in your tissue, I can have you do isometric holds and I'm not going to spur inflammatory processes. And what my understanding through FNOR has taught and through what the research demonstrated is that intense isometric activity uh, has a four to eight hour carryover in terms of neuroplasticity in the brain. Uh, Or another way to say that is that we can create changes in your brain for long periods of time based on isometric holds. And so yeah. that are not going to piss off your tissue if you're in pain anyway. And so, you know, tying this together for you, what it's done is FNOR has allowed me to uh, recognize that I can work people a lot harder than I thought I did if I do it in the right way. But to sexually right. sexy lunge you, if you can't, to change your sexy lunge, it's just going to piss off the tissue a lot of times. That was my experience a lot of times is that you have the sexy lunge, they don't do it, and you try to regress them, and you're still eccentrically loading, or you're concentrically loading the tissue, which is pissing it off and spurring inflammatory processes, not to mention how much harder in your brain and the processes in your brain that it takes for concentric versus eccentric versus isometric, right? And so just overloading. So to have a regressive thought process and build it back up, uh, that's what FNOR has done for me. And what muscle testing has done for me is allow me personally to understand what area I need to last uh, changes to through isometrics or any other through thought processes and all these other things that we're not talking about, right? Because the brain plays into experiences too and belief systems and all those things that FNR also talks about because it is really an integrated system from pain science, orthopedics, 
functional neurology, uh, uh, psychology, all these pieces that it's really drawing from. So. Right, and is um, and that's a that's, that's kind of a good segue into because you teach rock blades also, right? Because that was a I just took uh, rock blades advanced um, a couple months ago, and you know they're really focused on the peripheral neurology and and working with that and being a lot more gentle in your approach to you know reduce pain and uh in the peripheral nerves so uh because you teach for rock tape too also right yeah yeah it does I, I do teach for rock tape i've been very fortunate to do that for i think it's going on four or five five years now four years um but yeah i teach for rock tape and that is what the rock blades uh and the advanced particularly talk a lot about is uh is is just that that idea of the peripheral nerves getting pissed off and steve capobianco and ethan christworth have done a great job uh, with that course and putting it together and, you know, again, taking these best science practices and, and putting it together to understand that we really are dealing with the nervous system far more than we're dealing with, uh, with any, uh, musculoskeletal system. And so I like the blades course a lot. I really, as Steve put that course and then the second course together, as I said to him, it's really, a it's a paradigm in manual therapy more than it's, uh, just taking a tool and scraping on it. I mean, the first question I ask people is, does anybody use tools in here? And some people raise their hand and some people don't. And then I say, well, does anybody use their hands and touch people in here? And, well, these are tools as well. And so what it really is is rather it takes a step back and what the Rock Blades class has done is, uh, he's, again, he's outdone himself, I think, Steve and Ethan. But uh, yeah. uh, it, it, it's a paradigm in manual therapy in that we're recognizing that through a tool, we can apply it to up or down regulate or affect the nervous system far more than anything else. And so we can scrape to upregulate tissue, understanding, tying it to applied functional science, the different proprioceptors and what they do, and that some proprioceptors are going to work to upregulate tissue and bring more representation in your somatosensory cortex, while other uh, techniques and accessing other proprioceptors through other scraping techniques or techniques can work to downregulate the nervous system and, and bring uh, kind of relax it and stimulate parasympathetic dominance, which is so, so important if you're going to have pain. Because if you have pain, it's been recognized again through these pain processes uh, that you're probably, in my experience, you're going to be sympathetic in nature. If we think about yeah. the body's going to uh, restore and regrow or protect and defend or fight or flight or rest and digest, if you're in pain, you're probably not restoring or regrowing or resting and digesting. You're, you're, you're fighting and flighting. And so... Right. Uh, we need to stimulate parasympathetic responses because, frankly, the only way, and we're again tying it to extrapolating it from what uh, research uh, shows, is that uh, you're not going to learn anything new if you're parasymp or if you're sympathetic in nature, if you're fighting and flighting. You're not going to learn anything new in your uh, neuroplasticity that needs to occur to get you out of pain to bring more representation. And so down regulation becomes really important, chilling the F out, as I like to say. And I drop the F bomb right. with the right patient. I really like yeah. dropping F bombs because the right patient, they're going to giggle. And giggling right. is going to stimulate parasympathetic responses and all those things that will you know, go along with it. Uh, right. So the scraping and tie. So, yeah, I teach for rock tape. I teach that's what Rock Blades talks about. They've done a great job with it. It really is a, a, a spectrum and a paradigm in manual therapy, and particularly that Rock Blades uh, advanced course, which is a half-day course utilizing more of the new tools and mobilizing some of the superficial peripheral, uh, peripheral nerves. And one of the books that I recommend everybody also get is a book called Dermo Neuromodulating uh, by yep. Diane Jacobs. And Diane Jacobs talks a great deal about uh, these superficial nerves uh, and strategies to uh, get it. And her book was released a few weeks before mine, but I actually have her Kindle version on my phone, and I reference it uh, multiple times a week, certainly. You know, hold on, let me look at these nerves and where exactly as I'm poking around and where's your pain pattern. And so I just that becomes my... 
uh, my go-to rather than like, you know, surfing the internet. I just got the book and they've right. got some great strategies there, but uh, tying it to these, this peripheral nerve idea uh, that DNN talks a lot about also. So, yeah. And th- that was one of the things that I appreciated most about that course is it was only four hours long. There's an insane amount of information in there, but then they give you all the references that they got all that information from and, and um, that gives you the power to go study it on your own. Well, I think that that's like what you said right there is really important and key uh, to hit on is, is uh, giving you the references to go study it on your own. And yeah. uh, I think that that's super important for uh, any course that you ever go to to be able to get that and be able to do because what you'll find in my experience is that that's not always the case. And uh, with even within some of the um, various three- or four-letter certifications that we've mentioned here today, they become really protective of where they got their information, which I think is unfortunate. Yeah. And so the yeah. ability to go and learn it, you know, that's what I say, like lineage, I'm really fascinated by lineage and just uh, that, that idea of, of where it came from and, uh, you know, go to learn. And I, that's always one of the questions I go ask everybody that I've ever learned anything from is, you know, when nobody else was around most of the time, I go up at the end and say, you know, thank you and show my gratitude, but where did you learn some of this from? Who can I learn some of it from? And, right. uh I think that's really important. And if they won't give yeah. that to you, then I, you know, I, my advice would be move on and go learn from someone else. Because nothing's right. made up. I think actually there's very few things that are made up. I think Gary Gray and applied functional science, Gary's one of those people that, it, that made it up. He was able to, smart enough and was able to pull from, from all these other sources to be able to really like extrapolate and put it into a way that a lot of people and very few, or excuse me, that very few people have been able to do. But other than that, in my experience everybody's making their own it's, everybody's making shit up it's just a matter of where they got it from nothing is right. unique and it's just a, as mark twain says a spin of the kaleidoscope and it's your interpretation of it and as long for me as uh as long as i give credit to who i learned everything from like i feel really comfortable at this point in my career talking about it and for a long while i didn't i was really hesitant to um yeah. but I, you know that's how i've rationalized it to myself anyway man Right. And so, you know, that's one of my favorite things about social media is I follow uh, a lot of people that I really look up to and they all post, these are the books I'm reading right now. And it's, and so now my Kindle wish list is, you know, 50 books deep and I always have a book to read because I remember I have the, the picture, a screenshot saved from last year or maybe even longer where you just had this pile of books on your desk and you're like, these are my books, and you took a picture of it, and I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to read all of those. You know, so <laughs> that's, yeah, it's really fun. Um, yeah, well, that's so one of the things you... I've been able to do, I think, really well. You know, I've taken the personality tests and the Colby indexes and all those kind of profile and whatever, but what I've realized in life is what I mean. Uh, one of my talents is being able to bring ideas and people together. Hey, you need to yeah. know this person that you met, but, but then being able to bring things together from various sources that, hasn't uh that otherwise would seem like it doesn't relate but being able to do that and what that has come through and the way that that's progresses again to tie this back full circle as we're lining up here lenny parasino taught me that through that idea of fundamentals of intervention and before that and i talk about in my book uh, i had a, what i would call at that point journal of truths or what i call now just a consistencies you know a journal of consistencies in a place where as i was learning this literally i had a, div- a journal divided at that point into three sections now it would probably be five if i'm going to anchor to my fundamentals of intervention but then it was physical, behavioral, biological for applied functional science. And anything I read from anybody, I, if they, I would like look for things that could fit into well, those three buckets, the physical bucket, the behavioral bucket, and the biological bucket. And if I couldn't fit into those buckets, 
I didn't want to put it into my thought process. And that really allowed me to bring together these various components to be able to, to put them together. And I recommend, I mean, that's how I think I don't literally do it that much. And I always write down and I take notes, but I don't have like that journal thought. I have that thought process though. And that's solidified yeah. through only writing it down. But I think that that's really important to be able to extrapolate. And at the same time, I think as I've taught a lot over the years, you know, taught uh, for rock tape and uh, a lot and taught courses based on my book, that have talked about a lot of what we've talked about here today. Uh, my experience with some of the younger clinicians is that they never, or some of the older clinicians, <laughs> is that they never anchor to one thought process before they start adding on these other layers and all these other thought processes. And I think right. what I've been able to do is I was so solid and have been so solid in my applied functional science thought process uh, that I continue to study uh, that I've been able to layer on all these other things. So my foundation is really, it's strong in one thought process. And what I think happens is that, that doesn't, it doesn't happen, and everybody kind of goes to a bunch of courses, but never is solid in any one course. And Andreo Spina talks a lot about that, at least he did when I was listening to him talk, uh, yeah. when I went to his course, about like, you know, anchor to a foundation and a system, whatever it is. And if it's SFMA or FMS, if it's AFS, if it's, FRC, if it's any of the other thought processes that are out there, go ahead and do that. If it's FNOR, which, you know, frankly, I recommend a lot because that also is a thought process, um, uh, I would do that. And then go take all the other courses, but get really yeah. good in one before you Great. go on. And, and I don't see that yeah. happening a lot. So. Yeah. So, um, and then I uh, wanted to touch just a little bit. Um, you, I heard your podcast with uh, Dr. Rintala uh, about the DNS. And I wanted to give you kind of a, a different perspective on how I use it, um, especially in the you, CrossFit space. Yeah, so go ahead and refresh me on what I said and what you're taking issue with, and then go ahead and tell me what you think. That'd so I didn't, I didn't uh, take an issue with uh, anything. So I thought it was oh, okay. Uh, good. <laughs> yeah, so I thought it was a really good podcast. I just think uh, right. so. I just wanted to um, give people out there a better idea of how you can use it as a coach because you have people kind of coming in, they don't really, they haven't moved their body in, you know, their whole life ever since they were a child. So then they come in and they're like, well, I want to get in shape, you know, I haven't really been doing anything and CrossFit seems like what I need to do. But then they don't really have any idea on how to organize their spine. And so you see them try and work on a deadlift and then they can't organize their spine. They can't organize their, uh, their core and and get everything firing correctly so then the way that i use dns is to like you uh, mentioned before is as a regression tool so if you can't organize your spine to pick something up off the ground properly under load then you need to start doing contralateral crawling patterns and so then i bring them down into like a bear crawl position and start having them try and organize their spine that way and if they can't do that then we regress them back to rolling patterns and if they can't do that then we regress them back to um you know what is called happy baby or you know the dead bug and then get them to be able to solidify their core and brace everything properly and then you know then start regressing them up then get them through the rolling patterns and then get that contralateral stabilization from crawling and then get them back to deadlifting again and so that's how i use it in my space and then also um you know, as a, a a licensed massage therapist, I also use it for uh, mostly breathing mechanics in that space because there's a lot of people that have mm -hmm. faulty breathing mechanics breathing up into their chest and into their neck, which sure, then absolutely. causes, like, dysfunctional diaphragm. So then, you know, DNS is a perfect segue into 
teaching people how to reconnect with their diaphragm and start sure. breathing that way. So, yeah, I just wanted to um, mention that to you real quick because yeah. I, I, th- I felt like that was kind of a little piece that I was mi- that was missing from that podcast, and I was kind of yelling at it as I was, like, driving down the road, be like, Rintala, mm. say this, say this, and it didn't come out. So, yeah. Well, I'm glad that you did. And listen, I mean, I think as you're talking, what I think of here is anchoring to a system that right. allows you to have the thought processes to move forward. And I think that that's great. And if it's DNS for you, DNS yeah. is great. And I know some great practitioners of DNS, including my wife who studied from Evan Osar, who studied from all the you know, large DNS practitioners, including right. some of the people that have wrote the book. And so I see a lot of value in it. Personally, what I think about looking at that from an FNOR model is establishing the relationships between the, the costopelvic relationship and maintaining that, the scapulothoracic relationship and the complex, the scapular complex, and being able to establish that uh, relationship, the cervical uh, retractive ability or the ability to maintain a sort of what we can even say neutral cervical spine, even though I don't believe in there being neutral anything. I think there are zones of neutrality, but that not breaking in your, your cervical spine through movement. And then the vestibular and cerebellar system to make sure that those are integrated. That's how Afnor would look at it. And in my right. experience, in tying that to like how I look at things, if you, you know, and tying it even in like uh, functional range conditioning, what Andrea Spina talks about is like having joint independence rather than joint interdependence. So if I have right. you flex your hip or if I have you flex your shoulder and you move and your, your relationship in your costal uh, vertebra or your costal pelvic relationship, the relationship between your pelvis and your rib cage breaks when I have you flex your hip or your shoulder, I probably want to work on that. If you do it in your, yeah. you know, or when I bring your shoulder up over, your hand up overhead, if you raise your shoulder up rather than engage some of the muscles that you should, you're engaging your upper trap and your pec, well, I might want to work on that. Or, and you break in your costal pelvis. Well, these are things that we want to work on and to establish. Yeah. So I think like hierarchically you drive, for me, it becomes, okay, well, I need to drive, like, you don't, ha- you don't even know that's the behavior that contributes to what you do. Let me make you aware of that behavior and how you're not able to do it. Okay, you can't do it real well. Now, now that you know you don't know how to do it, let's work on knowing how to know how to do it. But first, you need to know that you don't know in order to know that you do- know. Right? And there's right. The steps to, to work there. And so to have the thought processes to start to drive, A, being aware of, like, the, the motion and the position that you're in, and B, being able to, from a subconscious level, drive input into the brain becomes really important. Uh, and whatever system you're going to do that through, I don't care. I guess for me, the hang-up that I have with DNS personally is that, you know, going to some of these positions that we're reteaching, cross-crawl and laying on your back and all these positions, I see the value in it. I really do. But you have one curve in your spine at that point in development, not three, and now you have three. So why are we regressing that far back? And I think right. for me personally in the systems that I've anchored to, I feel like I have other ways to do it. And if you've come to do it through DNS, by all, by all means, there's no one way. I think it's great. I love DNS. I use pieces of it. I recognize the value in it. And for me, that's not what, like, that's not how I came to it. So I have trouble right. with those. Like, that's where my hang-up is. But I don't know. I think what you say is totally right on. Makes total right sense. On. What you're saying is, like, maintain costopelvic, maintain your scapular position, maintain a cervical spine. Don't move from your spine as you're moving from your extremities. And breathe well, which is, makes total sense to me, man. Right. <laughs> cool. Looking at it differently. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so, yeah, like I said, I appreciate your time, and I, I really value everything you just said, and it's just amazing. So um, let's uh, let's give everybody a good idea of how to um, find you. So, you know, you um, mentioned that your book is on sale, right, on Amazon. Yeah, is that yeah. correct? 
Yeah, and, the, my uh, book is called uh, Real Movement, uh, Perspective on Integrated Motion and Motor Control. Okay. Uh, uh, Real Movement, integrate, Perspective on Integrated Motion and Motor Control. You can find it on Amazon. It's on my website, which is adamwolfpt.com. Um, and that's know, where Instagram they can go. And all that stuff. Yeah, yeah you so can that's go, where they can go to find out. Yeah, and, and I've got some other uh, educational sort of streamable videos and stuff like that. You can also like teach a lot for rock tape, so you can find me um, for rock tape. And then I also teach some private courses as well. Like so, uh, you can get a hold of me through my website uh, at adamwolfpt.com. And then social media, it's all like on Instagram and Facebook and all that. It's all adamwolfpt. W O L F. Okay, and um, you. Uh, your real movement course, is that coming anywhere to the west side of the United States anytime soon? Well, uh, funny enough, with uh, October, there's some loose talk of having it in Northern California uh, in October. That would probably be like early-ish October. Nothing okay. solid yet. Probably going to have two more this year, uh, one in the west coast, I, uh, one in the west coast and then another in Chicago. Uh, I've just got so much going on clinically this year. Like I got a business that I run with a clinical practice and we got a lot right. going on, uh, trying to focus on that rather than teaching, uh, all over, but I'm hoping to get two more, one in the world, probably both of them will be like October or November. Okay, perfect. And then I uh, just keep an eye on your website to figure that one out. Yep. You can keep on my, my all my schedule will always be on my website. I'll, it's kind of updated fairly regularly with my courses for rock tape and then the real movement. And then I try to post stuff, uh, on social media, uh, although recently I've not been so good, but, uh, yeah. All right. All right. Sounds good. Thank you so much. My pleasure, man. This is a lot of fun. I appreciate the opportunity and, uh, good job. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you. Take care. Bye.